Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. I uh, hope you're doing well. hope you're enjoying this preparation time for Christmas. I feel like for me, it's the most stressful time of the year, probably in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe it is for you too. I don't know. Maybe you're better planners than me. Um, but I think it's good for us during this time, even as a church, kind of big picture, to slow down a little bit and to focus on what the season is actually about. I have a neighbor, and they put a sign up that said, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season, keep the Christ in Christmas, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's easy to say it as a slogan, but I think in our hearts, right, it's hard to actually pursue that, to press into that. So we're continuing our, our Advent series on the gifts of the Magi. So if you have your Bibles, you could open to Matthew 2. We'll be there again. We're trying to spend uh, these few weeks in December before Christmas really just trying to remember what's most important during this time. So Matthew chapter 2, again, we looked at this last week, and we're going to be focusing on verse 11. And within verse 11, we're going to be focusing on just one of the gifts, but we'll start in verse 1. Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, we pray, Father, that you would speak through your word this afternoon. God, I pray that these words that I speak will ultimately not be my words, but that I would communicate clearly what your word has to say. And God, we know that your word is truth that faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, that your word is living and that it is active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, so I pray, Father, that you would do spiritual surgery in our hearts today. God, that you would cut away the things that are not of you. God, I pray that you would take away our distractions. God, I pray that you would draw our hearts away from the idols that we are tempted to worship. God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance, that we might turn to you. And God, I pray for every single person in this room. God, I pray that you would use your word, God, which is your word, to speak to where they are at. And I pray that you would use it, God, to glorify yourself 
in their lives. God, we need your help during this time. We need your grace. We pray that your spirit will open up our eyes that are oftentimes a little too blind, God, and soften our hearts that are oftentimes a little too hard. And I pray, God, that this time would really, really, God, be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you had the opportunity to give one gift to baby Jesus, to the newborn baby Jesus, what would you give? I mean, surely, right, you give the best that you got. You wouldn't give some junk gifts. But how do you even define what the best gift would be? How do you even think? I think different people here have different personalities, so you're going to think about it differently. I know some of you are more practical, which is good, right? You're saying, well, I know it's expensive, but what I'll do is I'll open up a credit line at Target for them, right? It's for the whole family. They can use as much as they want, unlimited diapers and wipes and pouches and all of that. You're thinking practically. Some of you guys are thinking, okay, I mean, someone else will take care of that, family members. You're thinking more along the lines of luxury, right? Last week, we talked about how Jesus is a king. The first gift was gold. So you're thinking, okay, maybe something like a Rolex or some kind of nice watch, right? Because Jesus was born at the proper time, Romans 5, 6. You got a biblical reason even for it. Some of you guys are like, if it ain't broke, I'm choosing gold or frankincense and myrrh. And I don't have, I have no idea what frankincense and myrrh are. So I'm going to get gold for this kid. If you had the opportunity to give the newborn baby Jesus a gift, just one shot though, what do you think you would give? Think about it for a moment. I read this story once of a family that lived during the Great Depression about a century ago. And I think you guys know your history enough to know that the Great Depression was kind of a bad time financially for everybody. So it was really rough. They were surviving, but barely. And like many families, when Christmas was kind of coming around, they knew that we're not going to be able to afford anything. Like maybe get a little like skimpy tree or something, but they can't afford gifts at all. Now, this family, they had a young kid named Pete, six years old. And Pete, right, he is looking forward to Christmas. He doesn't fully understand the Great Depression, but he knows that things are kind of tough, that they're hungry, they don't have a lot of stuff. So the parents sit him down and they say, Pete, look, this year, Christmas is going to be a little different. Sorry, we can't do presents this year. He said, but here's what we can do. Okay, what we will do is we will get some paper and we will draw pictures of what we like to give to each other. And let's just see what we come up with. Okay, so the day arrives, and around their little flimsy tree, they have all these pictures of these gifts that they wished that they could have given to each other. And in contrast to the drabness of their reality, their current situation, in these drawings was grandeur and lavishness beyond compare. A limo and speedboat for dad, a diamond bracelet and fur coat for mom, a tent for camping, and a brand new swimming pool for Pete. Even though it was the Great Depression, That Christmas morning, even though there were no traditional gifts that Christmas morning, they were anything but depressed. There was joy and laughter all around. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you another question. Those gifts drawn on cheap pieces of paper, what would you say those gifts were worth? 
What would you say those gifts were worth? Again, it wasn't a normal Christmas, and by practical and luxury standards, it honestly was the worst possible Christmas you could ever have. There's no use to those things that are just drawn. They're not worth a lot. That paper is barely worth a few pennies. But just because the drawings themselves weren't utilitarian, even though they weren't monetarily valuable, does that necessarily mean that they were without worth? What would you say? See, sometimes determining the worth of things, it's kind of hard to quantify. Now, we're continuing this series on the three gifts of the Magi. Okay, the three gifts that the wise men brought Jesus after he was born. Last week, we talked about gold, and we talked about how gold is an appropriate gift for a king. Gold is the most expensive thing that you can bring. It's valuable. It monetarily has a lot of value. Everyone recognizes how great gold is as a gift. It's really, in one sense, the best you can give. And Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, right, he is truly the king, deserves our very best. We talked about that last week. But there's more to these gifts than just gold. What about this week? With the second gift, with frankincense. What about it? What is frankincense about? What even is frankincense? And why is it, a, why is it an appropriate gift for Jesus? That's what we're going to get into today. So look at your text. Three points. First, the fragrance. Look at verse 11. The fragrance. And going into the house... They, the wise men, saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know what gold is, but what in the world is frankincense? The thing you need to know right off the bat about frankincense is that the thing about frankincense is it's all about the fragrance. It's all about how it smells. Now, it's interesting, if there's one time of the year that has kind of strong smell connotations, associations, it's Christmas, right? Like certain things will remind you of your childhood. Maybe you'll smell some gingerbread baking or you'll, you'll smell some chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I don't even know what that smells like, honestly. I know what gingerbread smells like. Maybe you smell uh, peppermint hot chocolate, something like that. There are all these different smells that take you back in your memory to different things. My family used to always get a real Christmas tree. We don't do that anymore. I'll tell that story in, a, in another sermon because there are all these bugs in this tree that I got. I don't know. It has something to do with sin or something. I don't know. Temptation. But anyway, I used, we have a fake tree. But in my past, my family would always get a real tree. And there's something about the smell of a real Christmas tree. It doesn't even matter exactly which type. But any kind of real Christmas tree, it smells like Christmas to me. I could go to your house and uh, you're talking to me. I'm not listening because I smelled your tree and it's transporting me back to a living room that I haven't lived in in years, in decades even. I know that there are some fake trees that have natural Christmas smell. Get out of here, right? That's not it. It's real Christmas trees. Something about the real wood and the real pine and the real resin that comes out of the tree. It reminds me of a place and a time far away. Now, frankincense, okay, funny enough, also comes from a tree, okay? It actually comes from the resin of a tree. Frankincense comes from the Boswellia tree, and you can look that up on Google. It's just, it's a tree, okay? It has, like, leaves and stuff. In Jesus' day, frankincense was very hard to come by, and I'll tell you why. 
there are only a few kinds of Boswellia trees that could produce good frankincense. They only grew in certain places in the Middle East and in North Africa. So you couldn't just like get it anywhere you wanted. There's only a certain place. Traders had to bring them, spice merchants, stuff like that. And what they would do is it was a painstaking process. They would have these trees and people would go and they would scrape off the bark on the trunk of some of these trees. And then they would wait. Okay. And they would wait some more. They would wait two or three months. And slowly what would happen is the, the sap from the tree would start to leak out a little bit, like drop by drop. And it would slowly come out, kind of ooze out of the tree. And over those two or three months, the sap would harden into kind of these tear-shaped crystals. And they'd come back and they'd scrape off the crystals. And that's frankincense. It's these tear-shaped crystals from the bark or the sap, really, of a Boswellia tree. And they would sell this. Now, nowadays, you can actually buy a bag of frankincense of these frankincense crystals. I checked actually online. I went to a website called amazon.com. I don't know if you know about it. Um, and I searched frankincense and you can buy a bag of real frankincense crystals for $20. I actually thought about buying um, that bag and passing it out to all of you guys. I thought it would be kind of an object lesson, kind of bringing the Bible to life slash like a souvenir, our gift to you, right? I'm like, this is a costly gift of frankincense, even though it costs like three cents or whatever. Um, but Eric said, don't do it for one. Uh, but second, because, you know, this isn't our building. Like, how are we going to get like the frankincense smell out? There's going to be frankincense dust everywhere. So I asked that, but you can buy it. Okay. I'm telling you on Amazon, you could search for frankincense. You could buy it. You could smell it. But all this to say, okay, even though it's easy in our day, frankincense in Jesus's day, because of the labor and the time involved, because you had to travel to go get it, it was rightly qualified as, if you look at verse 11, as a treasure. Okay, some scholars estimate that frankincense in that day was probably pound for uh, pound for pound about as expensive as the gold was. It was very rare. It was expensive. But again, with frankincense, it's not simply about how much it cost. It was about why you wanted it in the first place. It was about the smell that it had, the fragrance. Frankincense generally has this kind of woody, warm, spiced kind of smell. It smells good, okay? In other words, it smells really good. It kind of has a strong smell. So think about this, okay? Just get this into your head. In a world without deodorant, in a world without hot showers or cold showers for that matter, in a world where you didn't have a car, right? You had a donkey at best. And you know, donkeys need to eat. And you know what happens when you eat Think about how valuable it would have been to have something on hand that smelled really good and was really strong and how it smelled. So picture the scene, right? You're Mary and Joseph. You just had a baby. It's your first kid. And he was born in a manger of all places. And these guys show up and it's amazing, right? They bring out gold and you're like, oh, pretty nice, right? They're not that rich. They're like, okay, okay. And then they bring out frankincense and you're like, even better, Uh, This is a gift that we can use. Smells good. But it goes even beyond that. See, the thing about smells, like I said, like the Christmas tree for me, I don't know what it is for you, but I'm sure you have something. The thing about smells is that they have associations. Something about certain scents or fragrances, aromas, bring us back. Maybe it's your grandma's cooking, whatever it might be. Frankincense had a strong smell. And if you were a faithful Jewish person who lived in the first century, there was one place that you associated frankincense with. Do you know what that place was? 
Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 30. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 30. All right, let's go here. Exodus 30. Exodus 30 is the first place in the entire scripture where frankincense first shows up. Okay, this is way before Jesus. Exodus 30, look at verse 34. You guys got it? Exodus 30, verse 34. We'll read to verse 38. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte and anica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Go back to verse 34. What's the final ingredient of the incense that you're supposed to offer only before God? It's frankincense. I mean, we just dropped into kind of a random part of scripture, but at the end of Exodus, what's going on is God is giving his people instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which was their portable temple. This is how you're going to worship me. The whole section is detailed instructions on how to build it, what materials to use, how to create different things. They were supposed to worship God in a certain way. Here, God is giving Moses the holy recipe for the incense that they're supposed to offer to God and what's included What's the smell of this incense? It's frank incense. Okay, now some of you guys are like, oh, okay, I thought it was just something else. Frank incense. The English word frankincense, it actually literally means high quality incense. That's kind of the etymology of it. It's incense. Now turn with me a few pages to Leviticus 2. Okay, this is right after Exodus, Leviticus chapter 2. There's more, Leviticus 2. Look at verse 1. And if you heard the sermon last week, if you guys were here or heard it online, do you remember, okay, there were three places I said in the Bible where all three, gold, frankincense, and myrrh show up. Obviously, Matthew 2, the passage we've been studying, that's where gold, frankincense, and myrrh show up together. They're all part of this package gift deal that the Magi give to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. There's another place in the Song of Solomon. We went there last week. During Solomon's wedding, there are these perfumes of frankincense and myrrh, and then the, the carriage is built out of gold. But there's one other place in the Bible where all three show up. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the temple itself. Now look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Uh, verse 1, actually. Chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. See, when you read about the temple, the temple was built out of stone and gold. The original tabernacle was built out of fabric, but gold was in it. Myrrh was part of the anointing oil for the priest. We'll talk about myrrh next week. I don't want to steal myrrh's thunder here. But frankincense was burned daily as incense 
and also part of the grain offering that was offered regularly before God. Now, someday, Lord willing, we will teach through Leviticus verse by verse because I don't know if you can believe this, but Leviticus is probably the uh, craziest book in the Bible. And I think a lot of you guys know that. It's misunderstood. It's misrepresented. It's hard to understand, actually. But Leviticus, even though it's not an easy book, there's so much gold in here if you're willing to dig. So someday we're going to try to do that, Lord willing. We don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty details. So let's just focus on what we have right here, the grain offering. Okay, chapter 2 is the grain offering. There's all these different offerings. If you look at the heading of verse uh, chapter 1, laws for burnt offerings. Chapter 3, laws for peace offerings. But chapter 2 is about the grain offering. Now, let me just kind of run you through this real quick. The grain offering was an optional offering. Okay, it was an optional offering. It was purely a worship offering if you wanted to worship God. Some offerings you had to do. If you sinned, if you sinned against God, then there was judgment against you. You had to offer an animal up for forgiveness and atonement. You had to do it if you wanted to be right with God. But the grain offering was never technically required. You just did it if you wanted to give praise and glory to God. The only thing that was required about the grain offering, besides the fact that it was of grain, was that you had to make it smell like frankincense, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, put it together. Let's think big picture here. Back to our passage, Matthew 2. Go back to Matthew 2. The incense offered day and night in the temple, it smelled like frankincense. Okay? It was constantly just burning and smoking with the scent of frankincense. The grain offerings, which were offered pretty regularly throughout the day and the week, they smelled like frankincense. So here's what we might not have known before, but now you do. A faithful Jewish person couldn't smell frankincense in his day or her day-to-day life without being transported in some way, shape, or fashion to the one place where they smelled frankincense all the time, the temple of God. If you're Mary or you're Joseph, people who go to the temple every single year, You couldn't go to the temple without smelling the warm, spiced, woody fragrance of frankincense. So you got to kind of transport yourself there a little bit to Bethlehem, to this room. The Magi show up. They pull out the gold, which is awesome. But then they pull out the frankincense and they're giving this gift to them. And it's not just that it smells good. It smells like the temple. It smells like worship. See, gold, it points to Jesus' kingship. But frankincense, it points to worship. And we actually see this thread woven throughout the entire text. If you look at verse 2 again in chapter 2, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to do what? To worship him. Now, people in pagan lands, they would like worship their kings. And it was kind of like a soft worship, a lowercase worship. It was kind of bowing down and showing respect. But Matthew paints the Magi in a positive light as people who actually seek after the one true God. And if you look at verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Okay, this is religious. This isn't just respect. You wouldn't fall on your face before a king, no matter how great this king was. So here's the thing. In this first point, Christmas isn't just about respecting Jesus as important, as important as that is. 
Christmas is actually about worship. Now let's pause here for just a moment and then we'll move on to the second point. But when you hear words like worship or even religion, what comes to mind? Like, what do you think about? What do you picture when you think worship? Because we don't live in first century Israel. We're not Jewish people under the old covenant. We don't go to the temple every year. So what do you think of when you think about worship? The first thing that came to mind for me, actually, was this video, this viral video that I watched like years ago. And I rewatched it again on YouTube. And what happens is there's this pastor up in front on stage. He's like a youth pastor or worship. I don't know. Um, But he's kind of talking seriously, um, and it's dated. It's from like the early aughts or whatever. Um, But he's talking seriously about Moses and the burning bush from Exodus 3. And he's talking about how Moses saw this bush that was burning. It wasn't like consumed. And then God spoke to him through the burning bush and said, the land or the ground that you're standing upon is holy ground. Therefore, take off your sandals. And it's kind of serious. So I was like, okay, this seems pretty good. I mean, it's the Bible. And then he says, okay, I don't care how old you are or how young you are. I want you to bend over and take off your shoes. I was like, okay, I mean, it's kind of in line with my buying frankincense thing. It's a good, like, object lesson. It'll be memorable. But then he goes in this tone. He's like, and while you're down there, grab a sock. Like, it's all serious. And he starts talking like he's, like, auctioning or something. So he's like, grab a sock and start swinging it over your head. And then the drummer starts, like, going, you know. And then he starts singing, you spin me right round, Jesus, right round. And he's like, get, out, get on in in this holy hoedown. That's what he says. And everyone's like, you know, like spinning the sock. Some people are really into it. And it's very uh, amazing. I don't even know who that song is by. I think you guys know that song. I've heard that song before. I know this, though. It is definitely not a Chris- Christian song. Okay, it's not a worship song. He added Jesus into it, but that doesn't mean that it's a Christmas song. And here's the thing, okay, my mind went to that. But we said this last week, Christmas, Advent, the birth of Jesus, it's about Jesus, right? I said this, but take it a level deeper, right? And thinking about frankincense, it points us to worship. Take it a level deeper. We need to make Christmas about Christ but simply adding a little bit of Jesus to it, does that make it worshipful? Just add a little bit of Jesus. Add a little devotional reading on Christmas Day to everything else that we normally do. Add a couple of Jesus songs to the playlist right in between Insync and Mariah Carey. Right? Add a little bit of maybe, I don't know, squeeze like a Christmas Eve service or maybe going to see a production of the Christmas story. I guess what I'm asking is, if the Magi understood that Christmas was about worship, if frankincense actually pointed Mary and Joseph to worship, what should that mean for us? Is there something more than just, okay, sprinkle a little Jesus onto your Christmas celebration. Just make sure to add Christ as an addendum to Christmas and then say that that's keeping Jesus the reason for the season. Is he actually the reason? at the center of it. What should it look like to have a truly worshipful Christmas for you and for your family and for our church? It seems like it has to be more than that. And this leads to the second point. The second point, the distance. We have the fragrance and then we have the distance. If frankincense is all about the fragrance or the smell, when we talk about worship, we need to take into account 
the distance. And what I mean by that is the distance between us and God. See, when we read of the Magi worship banner, or we think of Mary and Joseph and other Jewish people going to the temple to worship, it's like a different universe from the worship that we normally experience. And there are some good reasons for that, but it's so different. It's like we're worlds apart. And I was listening to one of the big Christian songs this time. Um, you spin me right around, Jesus? No, I was listening to this big Christian song, one of the big songs from the pandemic. It's called The Blessing. You might have heard of it before. Like every church like recorded them singing it like in little little boxes and stuff. And all these Christian artists covered it. And it was big because it came out like right when everything started shutting down and people were all unsure about stuff. Anyway, it's a, it's a pretty good song. It comes from the book of Numbers. Um, it's very ubiquitous. Um, but yesterday I was writing this sermon, actually. I was working on it. And I was listening to a rando Christian song playlist. And the original recording of The Blessing came on. And before, I, I don't like when this happens. I just want to hear the song. I don't want to hear any talking. But before the, the people who wrote the song started introducing the song and kind of like their thoughts behind it. And Carrie Job, who's one of the writers, she said something that struck me. And I'm going to paraphrase. But she said, our goal in writing the song was to just sit there and then go in after the presence of God. That's kind of the language she used. We just had to go in after the presence of God. And after a couple of hours, the presence of God just stopped everything. I was like, okay, I don't know what this means, but it sounds cool. And we had this song. It's like, I just threw it in the fire and out came this song. Just kidding. Now, I have a serious question for you though. Seriously. In light of what I just said about the blessing, and you might like that song. I like that song too. But in light of kind of the process behind it, what would you say it means to go in after the presence of God? What does that even mean? How do you understand that? How would you obey that call if I said, okay, your homework for this week is to go in after the presence of God? It's a complicated question for sure. But here's the thing, okay? Don't even worry about it for yourself for right now. For the Old Testament believer, for the Jewish Israelite person, for any person before the Christ, it was simple. If you wanted to go in after the presence of God, you had to go to where God was and where he was, was in the temple at Jerusalem. God is everywhere, of course. He is omnipresent, as the theologians say. No temple can contain him. Solomon even said, even the heavens can't contain God. But God chose to manifest his presence within the temple, this building in Jerusalem, and before that in the tabernacle, which traveled. And if you wanted to meet him, you had to actually travel and go to where he was. Now, the temple went through different phases. We don't need to get too into it, but you have to understand the structure of it a little bit. And I'll just run through this with you guys. The temple in Jesus' day, the one that Mary and Joseph would have gone to, it was humongous. It was the biggest temple they ever had. Herod had expanded it. On the outside was this huge court. And in the court, you were kind of technically in the temple, but it was called the court of the Gentiles. So anyone could go there. You didn't have to be a Jewish person. You could go there. But then within this court, there was a smaller, like, ring, I guess. It's more like a square. There was a a more exclusive court called the court. Well, there's the court of the men and the court of the women. So if you're not Jewish, you can't go into these courts. And then even within that, there's the court of the priest. So even if you're a faithful Jewish believer and you have a relationship with God in a sense, if you're not a priest, you can't go into there. 
And then even within that, in a smaller area, was the temple proper. And it was called the holy place. And in the holy place, only consecrated priests could go in there, basically at certain times, to perform functions. The holy place, okay, the word holy means set apart or separate. Um, and I know it could be hard to kind of get through all of the passages that describe the temple, but just think about, it, think about it as getting more and more exclusive as you get in. In the holy place, there were three things, okay? Now, sometimes it's hard to kind of pick this up when you're reading like Exodus and stuff, but there were just three things. That's all you got to know, okay? One, one, within the holy place was the golden lampstand. Okay, it was basically this lampstand of candles, and it had to be constantly lit. That was the rule. It always had to be lit, never dark. And if you know the story of Hanukkah, okay, it's about keeping that lampstand, the menorah, lit all that time, like kind of miraculously. You can look into that later. The second thing in there was the bread or the table for the bread of the presence of God. And we actually talked about this in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you guys remember, but David, remember, he's on the run from Saul. He's super hungry. He needs bread. He goes to the priest for help, and they're like, we don't have any bread except the bread that's on the table for the bread of the presence. It's God's bread. And they give it to him. It's not right for them to give to him. I mean, David is the king, but he's not a priest. He's not God, obviously, but they help him by giving them the special bread that's reserved for God. So there's the golden lampstand, the table of the bread of the presence, and then the final thing in the holy place was the altar of incense. Every single morning and every single evening, the priests would take this special concoction, this recipe of incense from Exodus 30, and they would offer it to God. Every morning and every evening, the smell of frankincense would permeate, would come out of the holy place and permeate the temple grounds. And that's not all. Within the holy place was an even more exclusive place, the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and this is where God's manifest presence was, where God had chosen himself to dwell and in between the holy place and the most holy place was this humongous veil or curtain. And it really was a curtain, okay? In Jesus' day, it was 60 feet tall and four inches thick. It kept you out. It kept everybody out from the presence of God. The only person allowed to, quote unquote, go after the presence of God was the high priest. And he could only go in once a year on a specific day called the Day of Atonement. And if he didn't wash himself rightly or didn't obey the instructions rightly, then he would die. Once a year, one person could go in. So here's the thing. If people, you know, were watching YouTube way back in the day and they heard that language, go in after the presence of God, they would have been shocked because you didn't just waltz into the presence of God. They didn't choose whatever, they, uh, wh whatever way they wanted to experience God that day. Like a lot of people do nowadays, you hear people talk, right? Like, oh, I was so close to God because I went out into nature, right? I skipped church to go on a hike, something like that. Or maybe I went to a mega church worship service and, and the music was so good. I just felt, you know, like the spirit or something and or maybe it's a quiet time with candles and contemplate. I don't know, whatever it might be, a cup of coffee. The temple, the whole system was it. And it taught them that God had to be approached in a certain way. 
See, Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. What is this verse saying? God is heavenly, we are earthly. God is holy, and we are sinners. God is God, and we are not. Therefore, be careful. Don't be too casual in approaching the God of the universe. Now, okay, that was a lot of explanation. So let's just pause for a second. How does that sit with you? I'm not trying to be harsh or anything. I'm just trying to get you into the world, to kind of get you into the sandals of these people, God's people. And how does it sit with you that to approach God, to have a relationship with God, to be able to worship God, to be able to go in after the presence of God, you had to do these specific things. And there were all these barriers kind of in between you and the actual presence of God. I mean, are you kind of turned off by this? Like, hey, you're not really selling me on Christianity, man. Right? Like, I wanted to hear about Christmas. You're talking about Hanukkah and how hard it is to live for God. Come on. We're only in the second point here, so give me a little time, please. But how does this sit with you? Let me put it another way. I saw this documentary once called Grizzly Man. I think I've shared about it before. You guys ever see it? It's by Werner Herzog. It's about this guy named Timothy Treadwell, and he uses his own footage that he took on these trips to Alaska. And he was kind of like an interesting guy. Uh, you can watch it. It's kind of sad. Um, but he didn't really get along with people. He was kind of antisocial. And he would go to Alaska every summer for months and camp there by himself and hang out with the grizzly bears. He viewed himself as like their friend, their protector. He would like follow them around and like video record them really close. The footage is incredible. He even touched them sometimes. Like he'd try to pet them, which I would advise don't do. His footage is great. And in his mind, he had developed these relationships with these wildly dangerous animals. But it was only in his mind. Because after 13 years, which is crazy, I can't believe he made it that long. But after 13 summers, Timothy Treadwell was killed and eaten by a grizzly bear. And again, it's tragic. It's sad. Some of you guys are smiling. I, I'm going to remember that later. I'm kind of scared of you guys. Um, but it's tragic. It's incredibly sad. But let's be honest, right? No one here is surprised that eventually the grizzly bears got him because grizzly bears are dangerous. Right? You know this. You might not know the stats. The average grizzly is 6'6", between 400 and 700 pounds. They got sharp teeth, sharp claws. They aren't domestic. Of course, they're not evil or anything. They're not out to get us. But they're dangerous by nature. And so there are rules of engagement. You don't go up to them and pet them. You don't try to just feed them in their mouth from your hand. If you want to see them, you have to respect these rules. Or as Timothy Treadwell found out the hard way, you face the consequences. You can't just waltz into their presence and do whatever you want. See, most people, maybe not Timothy Treadwell, but most people understand this about wild animals. You're not petting your alligator or whatever. But do we understand this about God? Because that's the point of the temple. God is dangerous by nature. I mean, okay, can you imagine? Okay, can you imagine being an Israelite in the days of the Old Testament? Every year, you're required to travel to Jerusalem, not for vacation, okay, not for fun, but for worship, to atone for your sins. 
And to do that, you had to offer up a costly sacrifice. One of your animals that you had been raising up, you don't have a lot of animals to spare. There were specific rituals you had to perform according to the law. You had to purify yourself. You had to avoid certain things. If one of your family members died, you couldn't go to that funeral and be near that dead body or else you would be unclean. It was a lot of work to worship. And then for the priest, it was even more work. But that's the price you pay if you want to go after the presence of God. Now keep imagining this scenario. Picture yourself, you're living in ancient Israel. You read the Torah, the law, and you see all the requirements, all the rules of engagement. Now, what's the question that you think a lot of us would think? I know I've thought this. You read page after page of this is what you got to do. You can't do this. Make sure that you look this way. You can't wear these clothes. I mean, think about it just in terms of who you are right now. You think part of you might ask, is this worth it? Is it worthwhile to, to travel, to sacrifice, to get new clothes, to do whatever it takes to make the distance a little shorter? I think it's worthwhile to at least ask so you know your own heart a little better. I mean, if you had to do more than just ascribe to some doctrines, just believe in God, to say you believe in Jesus, just pray a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart. If you actually had to do all of these things, would you even want to be a worshiper of God? I mean, just make it analogous to now, right? What if you had to come to church 52 Sundays a year? You had to. If you didn't, then you're out. What if you had to give up one of your costly possessions to sacrifice for your sins? What if you had to dedicate an entire day a week just to resting? Okay, you couldn't just do fun stuff with the kids. You had to stay at home, couldn't work on your side hustle or catch up on household projects. It's just a thought experiment. Okay, I'm not saying you have to do these things to be saved. Of course not. But I'm just asking because it's a good way to understand yourself how much you really want to worship the one true God. Would any of you say, I mean, even just what I said, would you say, you know what? I'm good. I can't imagine many of you actually saying that out loud, saying that God isn't worth it. But I think it's good to think about maybe, when was the last time you actually did sacrifice something so that you could be closer to God? When was the last time it was costly in any way for you to worship God? When was the last time that you did something that was super inconvenient for yourself because it meant that you would be able to go in after the presence of God? Listen, the good news of the gospel is that salvation is a free gift. Don't get me wrong. But just because it's free, does that mean that it's not worth that much? Think about this from another angle. A Christian author once asked this question, and I quote, he said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if... Christ was not there. So we might like the things that come along with Christianity. But is God the thing we're really after? See, here's the thing, guys. 
We're not doing God a favor when we worship him. Do we realize that? Worshiping God, it does honor him. It does please him. It does glorify him. It does bless him. He does like it, but he doesn't need it. And he never did. Worship, I don't know. Do you know what that word means? It's an English word. It comes from the old English worth-ship. It literally means the thing that you think is worth it, the thing that you think is most worthy of your everything. You're ascribing worth to something, subjective value. It's a recognition in yourself that this thing is important. God is infinitely valuable in of himself. Nature gives him glory. The angels sing his praises eternally. He doesn't need your worship, but worship for you is your chance to participate in going in after his presence, to behold him for who he is and to approach him where he is. Let's bring it back to frankincense and then we'll go to the last point and tie this up. The temple smelled like frankincense. Okay, hopefully you guys know that for the rest of your lives. The temple smelled like frankincense, but it wasn't just so that the temple would smell good for us. And it probably would have smelled bad. It's like a butcher shop in there. How many animals were being killed? Blood is being, being splattered everywhere. Guts are like on the floor. I mean, it would have smelled bad. That's why frankincense was good for us, right? It helped our noses. But it wasn't just for our sake. Leviticus 23, 13 says, And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma to him. See, God was pleased by the fragrant aroma of the grain offering, which smelled good because of the frankincense in it. Frankincense was used in the incense. And the incense, which is interesting, it was offered right outside of the curtain that blocked off the holy place from the most holy place. No one could go in except for the high priest once a year, but every evening and every morning, the incense was lit and the smoke would go out and it would go underneath and around and through the curtain. Frankincense was offered before God every single day. He smelled it every single day. There was a distance, but frankincense bridged that gap. And so the Jewish people, they would always think about frankincense in terms of their prayers. In fact, Psalm 141.2, this might not have made much sense, but I think it will now. It says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, it's not just the good smell, but it's the fact that it actually goes into the presence. So you can see it two ways. God is hard to worship. What a drag. Or you can see it this way. God is in heaven and we are on earth. The manifest presence of God is behind a holy veil. I'm just a regular person and a sinner to boot. God should be impossible for me to get to. But he made a way for us. Frankincense represents that way. We'll close with this third. We'll do this third point quick and then we'll close. The third point, the significance. So we got the fragrance of frankincense. We got the distance between us and God. But what's the significance of how this all goes together? Back to Matthew chapter 2. Pay attention to the attitude of the Magi. Now, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They're excited. Verse 3. How does Herod feel? He is troubled. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced 
exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening up their treasures, everything that they had, they gave the best. The Magi clearly thought it was worth it to sacrifice, to travel, to give. See, here's something we need to understand. If the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, then we don't have a choice of whether or not to worship. That's not even the question at all. We're creatures made to worship, Romans chapter 1. The only choice we actually do get is what we worship. we got to worship something, so we worship something. Our hearts will automatically zero in on something as worth it and give it our best. So, for example, the atheist businessman who has never set foot in a church, he is a worshiper because he gives everything in his life to his career. He sacrifices relationships with his children and his wife and his friends. Why? Because he's trading that in for something better. He gives all of his best effort and energy he finds his identity and meaning and purpose in his work. He found, he's found something that he considers worth it. You know, David Foster Wallace, the late novelist, do you know who that is? He actually committed suicide. It's very sad. Um, he was a great writer. The tragedy of his life was that he was so close. Like he was a guy who was searching for meaning and identity and purpose and everything, and he just couldn't find it. And he actually went to church a little bit toward the end of his life. I think he was looking. He just never found it. But right before he he killed himself, toward the end, he, he gave this commencement speech at this graduation. And he said the most interesting thing. Okay, this is what he said. I quote, he said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches, he's talking to college kids. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, or Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some uh, set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And he goes on to say, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. But the whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness, end quote. See, he never quite found it, but he had searched everywhere else and he had found it lacking. He saw the emptiness of trying to worship things that aren't worth it, that aren't worthy. They chew you up and spit you out in the end. See, here's the thing, guys. It's not like you can just say, okay, well, I'm not going to worship. It's too hard. You already are worshiping something. You always are. Something is taking your best. Something you're building your life upon. Something is giving you meaning. It's getting you out of bed in the morning. It might be yourself, but it's something. Do you worship money and things? Is is it always the next thing? Oh man, if I could just buy this, uh, so much better. If we could just get to this stage, oh man, the next benchmark, 
Do you worship success and the praises of men? You will always be killing yourself unless every single person loves you and tells you about it. And when has that ever happened? Do you worship power and political influence? At the end of the day, even though it might be important, you're rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. The things of this world are passing away. And again, all these things are fine in and of themselves, but they aren't worth it when it comes to worship. The truth is we are worshipers. And as St. Augustine said, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. It'll never be enough. So go back to the beginning, to Genesis. Do you remember the story? To the garden. Adam and Eve were created by God. And guess what? There was no temple. There was no curtain. There were no rituals they had to do. They just walked with God. They had a relationship with him. They spoke with him. They knew him. But then they sinned and turned away from him. And that communion was broken. Now there was a separation, a distance between man and God. So what did God do? He gave the temple. The temple was a concession. The temple itself was grace. The temple was a way for sinful fallen creatures to somehow get close to God again, to enjoy something of that closeness again, with sacrifices offered continually for sins, with priests as go-betweens on your behalf. And even then, still, though there was so much in it, even then, There was a curtain 60 feet tall and four inches thick. The temple was great, but it was not enough. Now turn with me to John 1, and we'll start to land this plane. John chapter 1. Look at verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus' incarnation, when he was born, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Greek, the word for dwelt there is actually literally the word tabernacle. The word became flesh. Jesus came to earth and he tabernacled among us. Jesus is the new and better temple, you could say. And you might say that's a stretch. We'll look at chapter 2 of John. Look at verse 19. This was our scripture reading today. Jesus, he kicks everyone out of the temple. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews are like, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They're thinking about the building. But verse 21, he was speaking not about the building, but about the temple of his body. How can a person be a temple? Well, what is a temple? A temple isn't just any old building. A temple doesn't need to have gold or incense or any of these things. A temple is the place where you meet with God. See, what Jesus is saying is that it's no longer going to be in a building. It's no longer going to require all these things. If you want to go after the presence of God, then you have to come after me. And Jesus came to replace the entire temple System, And we see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Book of Hebrews. Jesus is the high priest who lives to intercede between us and God for all eternity. But more than that, even more than that, Jesus is God in the flesh. The temple hosted the manifest presence of God. But now that presence has dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And when Jesus died for the sins of the world, what does the Bible say? Don't miss this detail. It says that at that exact moment, and it shocked everyone who was there, the curtain, 60 feet tall, four inches thick, just tore straight down the middle. It ripped in half. See, in Jesus, the way is open to worship God without a veil between. A wealth beyond what man can give. Something that can't be bought. Communion with him. So put it all together. The significance of frankincense in particular. Why it's so appropriate for Jesus. Well, when the Magi brought gold to Jesus, they were giving their best. They were recognizing that he was a king. There's something so powerful in that. But when they brought frankincense to Jesus, there's something else going on. When they brought frankincense to Jesus, they were, in a sense, crossing a barrier. They were stepping over a threshold. See, just as the smell of frankincense was the one thing that went into the presence of God past the curtain, now the Magi, these non-Jewish men who weren't priests, sinners, were able to kneel in God's presence with nothing in between. They could see his face. They could hold him. They could worship. See, guys, as we said last week, Christmas, ultimately, it's not about what you can give to God. Though you should think about that. But it's about what God gave to you. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the ultimate great high priest. He died in your place, bearing your sin upon himself. He rose again, and he ever lives to make intercession for you, Christian. It's not that it's easy to approach God now. It's not that we should be cavalier about it. It's actually very costly. But what we celebrate is that Jesus was born so that he might pay the price. And why did God do this? Not because he needs us. We've established this already, not because he needs us. Why did God become flesh and live here among our filth and sin? Not because he needed us in any way, but because he wanted to. And isn't that better? Because he wants to know you. He wants to invite you to worship him. He wants to enter into communion with you. Jesus, he drew near because he wanted to be closer to you. Every idol will eat you alive, but Jesus, he's different. We'll close here. And those drawings around the tree was all this luxury, kind of imaginative. It was nice to think about limos and swimming pools and all of that, things they'd never be able to afford, even if it wasn't the Great Depression. But then Pete, Six-year-old Pete pulled out his drawing for his parents. And in crayon was a man, a woman, and a child with their arms around each other. And scribbled underneath was just one word. Us. See, I think you guys know this. Sorry, these Hallmark things always get me now that I'm a father a little bit. But I think you guys know this. But the greatest gifts are not necessarily the most expensive gifts. Of course you know that, right? They're not the most utilitarian, the most useful. Those things are fine and good, but they're not the greatest. I think you guys know this, but the things that are most worth it in life are not actually things. It's the relationships that we have with each other, your family, it's your children, 
your friends, little conversations, laughter, memories. You know all of that. Maybe what you forgot is that it's the same way with God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Scripture tells us. And God does bless us with so many different things. We have so many things to be thankful for. But on Christmas, what we remember specifically on Christmas is that God sent the best he possibly could. It's not gold. It's not frankincense. It's not myrrh. It's worth more than all of these things that are perishable. On Christmas, God gave us a new temple. On Christmas, God gave us his son, which really is the gift of himself. In Jesus, we have the gift of his presence, the gift of a relationship with God with nothing in between, the gift of Emmanuel, which means God with us. So today, if you're thinking about frankincense, here's the call. Go to him. The veil is torn. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to book a flight to Jerusalem. You don't have to offer up an animal. Just go to him right now. Go after the presence of God. Every single person here who is weary and restless in heart, go to him. In Jesus, we have the presence of God dwelling bodily. So go to him and receive all that Christmas has for you to receive. Whatever it costs, it's worth it. Will you pray with me? Father, you are worthy of our praise. And God, we know that if we didn't, if we didn't sing, if we didn't worship you, that even the stones would cry out. God, you never needed us. You are infinite. You are eternal. We are so small and insignificant. And yet, Father, you allow us to come before you right now and speak to you and to call you our Father, and you hear us. And that's the good news. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of Christ, that he made a way for us in his body and by his blood to come to you freely to draw near even, to draw near boldly, even as your word says. So God, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. God, I pray that they would not take that privilege for granted. And I pray, Father, that they and we would find our rest in you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.